Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. Well, for years we've done shows on authentic living, but many today feel the world is spinning out of control and their goals of authentic living are spinning with it. Over the next hour, we'll hear from three experts who can take, help us take a step back, to help us pause, help us regain some balance, hopefully. Coming up around 12.20, if you feel trapped in wage slavery, ignoring your true talents and life's purpose, Maya Durr specializes in helping people discover work that matters, and we'll discuss how to create a livelihood that reflects your core intention. We'll end the hour with Aaron Edelheit, a self-confessed workaholic, that is, until he found himself with a serious health issue. His new book is called The Hard Break, and we'll discuss his argument for a 24-6 lifestyle, something I already prescribe to, or, or at least I aim to, every week I aim to do it. I do it most weeks. But first, uh, we, I'm very pleased to have Kate Davis joining us. Uh, she, her new book is called Intrinsic Hope, Living Courageously in Troubled Times. And uh, Kate is an emeritus faculty at Antioch University. She's senior fellow at uh, the Whidbey Institute and clinical associate professor in the University of Washington School of Public Health. She's the author of The Rise of the U.S. Environmental Health Movement, and uh, she lives right here in Washington, so very pleased to have you here, Kate Davis. Thank you. And um, so tell us about this book, because you wrote this book in response to people feeling despair, people feeling grief, uh, this angst that is generally around right now, correct? Right, yeah. I mean, I, I, a few years ago, I did a survey, very unscientific survey of, of some of my friends and colleagues, and, and not one of them was, was really hopeful about the future. And um, having worked on environmental issues for all of my career, um, I've often have had to struggle with feeling sad or grief-stricken or, or hopeless or angry, and, and so um, that's really why I decided to, uh, to, write, to write this book. Right. And so tell us a little bit about your background, because you've had quite a varied background. Um, you've worked on some issues that are really quite important. W- what's been one of your proudest moments, Kate? Oh, gosh. Um, I, actually, I'll name two, if I might. One, yeah. one is that um, back in the 1980s, I, I was in... I, set up and then managed the City of Toronto's Environmental Protection Office in in Canada. And and at the time, it was the first local government environmental office um, in in Canada. Of course, they're everywhere now. But at the time, um, we were really trying to do something that that nobody else had done before. And um, the second, so so that really gave me, I think, a a sense of... um, Really, what what might be possible in in terms of environmental protection and um, and looking after people's health and, and encouraging people to look after their own their own health. Right. The second the second thing really was was uh, was in Seattle, um, and that is that for a number of years I was 
uh, director of the Center for Creative Change at uh, Antioch University um, in Seattle, and we had a number of, of uh, programs that really focused on um, how can we um, how can we learn to build and, and create and sustain a better world for everyone. And um, in those programs, we, we taught many students um, who are now out in the world all doing wonderful things. And, and so I, I, I feel very good about my time, um, right. my time doing that. Right. You're obviously not slowing down with this new book. Um, you begin the book saying expectations um, around tomorrow, our, our expectations typically are, uh, oh, it'll be better tomorrow, it'll be better next week. But you say that's no longer realistic. Right. I mean, we can't we can't know that for sure. You know, when when I listen to the news or um, um, or read things, you know, it it seems that a lot of our a lot of our problems are getting worse. I think about climate change, or just look at what's happening with. No matter how you feel about immigration, just look about what's what's happening um, with immigration today. Things seem to be, um, in some respects, falling falling apart. No matter what the issue is, and so how can we maintain a sense of hope when there's so much that seems to be going wrong with the world? And that that's really the question that I <clears throat> that I set out to um, to explore in this book. How right. can we stay engaged and hopeful no matter what is happening in the world? Right, and so it's called intrinsic. Hope. So mm-hmm. let's begin with how this is different to what we would call, or what you term in the book, conventional hope, extrinsic hope. Right. So um, if you think about the word hope, and, and you and you look it up in the dictionary, you'll you'll see words like expectation or anticipation or desire. In other words, hope is conventional. Hope is about expecting or anticipating. Um, things that we want to see, uh, beneficial outcomes, um, desired states in the world. So I might say something like, I hope to win the lottery, because I, I think that winning the lottery, um, it, it's, an, it's something that I can anticipate, look forward to with pleasure. But the problem is that often life doesn't give us what we hoped for. Um, in fact, it'd be pretty miraculous if I won the lottery because I don't play you don't it. Do but, it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, you know, we can say, but for most of our hopes, we don't know that life is going to to fulfil them, to give us what we hope for, for sure, because we can't we can't control life. And so, um, this means that this kind of conventional hope, and I call it extrinsic hope in the book, because it's often about achieving particular um, outcomes or results or benefits in the external world, um, it, it almost always is accompanied by some pretty unpleasant emotions like disappointment and sadness and grief and fear that come up when we don't get what, what we hope for, when life doesn't give us what we want. And so I thought, well, there has to be another way of thinking about hope. And indeed there is. Um, also in the dictionary, there's a there is a, a much less common and old-fashioned definition of hope that's based much more on having trust in life. That really doesn't depend on what happens in the external world, but it's really an internal capacity um, that that human beings have, and that life itself has, of staying positive, of 
staying engaged, of, of persevering, of just keeping on going regardless of whatever is happening in the, in the world itself. It's just, it's just having, if you like, a, a basic faith in, in the unfolding of life and in how we can respond to it constructively or positively, even if we don't like it, even if we don't like what's happening, we can still approach life with a positive energy. And, and that's what I call intrinsic hope, because it's really inside all of us, and it, and it doesn't ultimately depend on conditions in the external, in the external world. Right. And we go back to that. You come at it from a place of love or you come at life from a place of fear, from a place of scarcity or from a place of abundance. Um, so the intrinsic, obviously, is coming from a place of love and a place of abundance, um, very much living in the present, motivated um, by good, basically. Yeah. And you, yeah. Say, you say in the book, this was interesting, I thought that the, the Spanish word, I didn't know this, is... Um, in, in hope in Spanish is the same as the word in Spanish also for wait. Wait and hope are the same words in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to talk about acceptance because um, you say we have to accept what is. We know we can't change anything really until we do uh, accept it. And, and we're talking about anything here. I mean, we might be upset about climate disruption, uh, social inequality, pollution, poverty, the, this current immigration situation that's going on right now. We might be something concerned about something close at home happening in our own household. Um, but you say the first thing we have to do is accept what is because we can't change it. You say acceptance is often confused with resignation. So talk to us about that. Right. Yes. I think this is a common misunderstanding or, or confusion. And um, let me let me respond to, to the question by using the example of, of an alcoholic. So, um, when when you ha- when someone is an alcoholic, if they accept their condition that they are an alcoholic, then they can take effective action to deal with it. But if they don't accept that they're an alcoholic, they'll stay in denial. They'll Day in running away from it, and they won't. They probably won't take effective action to do anything about it. So acceptance can lead to action. Um, but on the other hand, if if an alcoholic is resigned to their condition, if they're resigned to it, then they they it's like they've given up on on themselves. They've given up on life. They've thrown in the towel and. They're saying, well, that, I may be an alcoholic, but there's nothing I can do about it. So that's resignation. So there's a big difference between acceptance and, and resignation. Acceptance says, yes, I accept this, and therefore, because I accept it, I can take responsibility for doing something about it or trying to do something about it. So long as I deny what's happening, then I, I'm not going to take do anything that, that is likely to work, right? Right, right. You say uh, it's really important to name our feelings. So how does that help us by naming our feelings? I, I'm guessing this is going back to acceptance. It, it's identifying what's really bothering us. Right, exactly. Yeah, so naming our feelings about what's happening to the world is really important because if we don't acknowledge what's in our hearts and what's in our minds, 
then we won't be able to deal with it. If we deny that we feel um, afraid or sad or angry about the state of the world, then there's nothing we can do about those feelings. On the other hand, if we name them and acknowledge them, then there's then we can work with them. You know, it's the same as if, if you go if you go to a therapist. Um, the first thing that you do is talk about your feelings, and then then that gives you some control over them. It gives you the capacity to work with them. But if you don't name them, then then you can't do that. And and that involves some acceptance, as you say. Absolutely, yes. Right, right. <clears throat> so yesterday I spent some time going through social media. I was doing some research on this current immigration uh, issue. Not, I don't want to get buried in that, but that's what I was researching. And throughout the course of my research, I went into, uh, I, I went onto several social media platforms. Um, we have such a divisive <laughs> viewpoint on this situation. Uh, a lot of anger, um, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. And you talk about this in the book. Um, it's something many of us are feeling right now. So um, what do you have to say about shame and guilt or guilt and how this fits in? Yeah, I think that these are really important. These are really important emotions. And um, I'm certainly familiar with them in, in terms of, um, you know, the environmental crisis and our environmental problems. I live in a comfortable house. I have food in the fridge. I have a bed to sleep in. And so many people in this world don't. Right. Um, so guilt can, guilt can be a motivator for action. Guilt can help us to get out, up out of that comfortable armchair and actually do something. Um, but too much guilt and certainly shame, um, which is a pretty close companion of guilt, can be really debilitating and, and just drag us down and feel that, um, that whatever we do isn't, isn't going to be enough, um, that no matter what we do, we're not going to solve our problems. And that's not really a helpful attitude. What I'm saying in this book is, um, is that we need to keep, we need to take action. We need to do whatever we can to live um, to the best of our ability and to, to do what we can for other people. But we need to let go of the results of our actions. We need to do whatever we can because we are caring and loving people and we care about each other and we care about the planet rather than because we anticipate or expect that specific things will happen as a result of our actions. So it's really trying to let go of the outcomes to the extent that we can. Right, that makes perfect sense. Um, you write in the book that your work has often left you feeling afraid, um, lefting you feel angry, it's left you feeling sad. How have you kept going and why? Well, I kept going because, um, because I felt I had no choice. You know, I, I, if you asked a lot of... Um, a lot of in people who work on environmental and social issues, why they do what they do, um, the answer that you get back is, I couldn't not do it. Mm. It's, a, it's a kind of a double negative. I couldn't not do it. And that's certainly been my experience. I can't not do it because I care so much, because I, I care about the world that, um, that we have to live in and that we're leaving for future generations. So even though I don't know if it's realistic 
to expect that we will put an end to climate disruption or pollution or any of the other big social or economic problems we face, I still have to act. I still have to keep on going. Um, it's that love, it's that care that, that, that keeps us going. Rather than coming from fear or anger, which I think can often, if we do that, then we often can burn out um, and, and get very frustrated. And it, it doesn't solve anything either. And it doesn't solve anything. It, and it just makes other people mad too. Right, right. Um, but coming from love and caring, I think, is just an inexhaustible well of, of motivation and inspiration. Or at least that's my experience. Right, right. Well, you share the six habits of hope. We've kind of talked about them in this short period of time we've had here. Um, but one that we haven't mentioned yet is persevering long term. So we have to recognize we're in this for the long haul. So we've only got 30 seconds left here, Kate. Um, a, a quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with. Yeah. So the question is, can we persevere? Can we keep on? Can we keep on going even though we may not see the results of our actions? You know, I think about the people that built medieval cathedrals in Europe. They worked on them for generation after generation. It took four or five hundred years to build a cathedral. Can we, can we have that same kind of perseverance, that same kind of dedication that they had to, to the issues that we face today? Yeah, a lot of truth in that old saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. Precisely, <laughs> yes. Well, Kate Davis is a great book, Intrinsic Hope, Living Courageously in Troubled Times. Uh, I would think that this would speak to a lot of people. Um, a website, do you have a website, please, that you'd like to leave? Um, yes, so my website is katedavies.org, and uh, the book is available there. And also it's available on the publisher's website at newsociety.com. Awesome. Um, as well as booksellers, of course. Okay, well, Kate Davies, we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Vicky. And please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking about work that matters, how to create a livelihood that reflects your core intention. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals at Paws a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws foster care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500.
Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Laughter can help heal illness, emotions, and relationships. Jeopardy champion and New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings joins us to share a peek into the history of humor with Planet Funny. We'll also look at how to develop the right idea at the right time and the science behind creativity and the creative curve with Alan Gannett. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Be sure to tune in every Monday at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to help you heal and stay healthy. Conversation you won't find on the rest of the dial. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And if you've ever felt trapped in wage slavery or deadened to your true talents, you feel that you're not using your talents and your life purpose is kind of wishy-washy there, or you've wandered through dozens of jobs and uh, feel adrift, then uh, this is the book for you. Uh, Maya Dewar is my guest. Her book is called Work That Matters, Create a Livelihood That Reflects Your Core Intention. And Maya is a writer. She's an organizational consultant and coach for people going through life and career transitions. She draws on her years of Zen meditation practice and training in anthropology to create tools for integrating mindfulness into the workplace and into her clients' everyday lives. Uh, Maya Duo, welcome. Thank you so much, Vicki. I'm really happy to be here. So this is, uh, the book is called Work That Matters, and I think this is my opinion. I think today, more than ever, that is so important that we have something of our own that we really, really, really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <laughs> You say the most important thing uh, to know up front about this book is that it works from the inside out. So tell us about that. Right. Well, and it's based on a lot of my own life's uh, journey and experimentation with trying to find work that I loved. Um, And when I say it works from the inside out, what I mean by that is that for many years in my life, like I did probably what a lot of us do, I did a lot of job hopping. Um, you know, I tried a couple of different careers and just hit points of huge dissatisfaction and suffering. And so I went to career counselors, read books like What Color Is Your Parachute, uh, did aptitude tests. And all those things were actually, you know, helpful to a certain degree, but they weren't really on a deeper level, something wasn't working uh, because those same patterns continued. And it really wasn't until about a little bit more than 10 years ago that it finally, like a light bulb above my head, went off. Like, my goodness, what would happen if I really um, brought in, you know, my longtime mindfulness practice into this process and just brought more awareness and intention into it? And for me, that was really what made a huge difference, um, made some tectonic plate shifts in my ability to create work that matters for me. So that's the process that I share in the book. Um, And a lot of it, you know, I like to tell people this is actually not a book for everybody. So if you're somebody who's looking for like, you know, a a quick read on how to write a resume that's going to get attention, um, this is not that kind of book. This is really inviting you to be more curious about your life, about your, what I call your core intention, um, to really engage the book and look take a lot of reflection time to look back at what you've done. Um, So it really, I think it works best for people who are curious about their life and really open to learning more about themselves. Yes, absolutely. And you began your journey. You said out of desperation, I started making a list of the things Uh I truly enjoyed doing, activities that brought me happiness. And 
It included travel, meeting people from different cultures, listening to people's stories and writing. And this is how you began to formulate what you're doing now, right? And have you've been doing this for over a decade, I think, right? Yeah, this current iteration of my work, which I would say is, first of all, being self-employed. Um, and that came after a pretty devastating job layoff. I was working and living in the San Francisco Bay Area um, and really did not see that one coming at all. So I lost my job. And it was also 2008. So when it was the economy was just going down the tubes, right? Uh, so I really had to do something quite different. And this is also when I like I was sharing, brought the mindfulness practice into the process. So, yeah, this current iteration of my work life is about a little over a decade. Right. So if listeners can hear a little feedback, uh, Maya is joining us via Skype today. Sometimes we have uh, perfect conditions and other times we have a little interference. So I just want to let you know she's joining us via Skype today. Um, So I want to just talk about... um, So let's, let's say somebody comes to you for the first time, Maya, and they say, I hate my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, they're in pain. It's painful. If you have to go in every day to a job you don't like, it is painful, isn't it? Absolutely. So where, uh-huh. where do you begin working with them? Right. So the very first thing I would do is to do a little bit of um, detective work to just find out a little bit more about you know the source of that suffering and that pain. Um, and just to get a better sense There's something I call the three pathways to liberation-based livelihood. Um, And so this first one is that you might actually need to plan your exit strategy. But it's really important, I think, to understand a little bit more about what's going on for you. Um, And sometimes it actually is that either, you know, A, the workplace environment is so toxic that you do need to get out, or B, often what happens is that we're in jobs or workplaces that are actually um, directly contradicting our, our deepest held values So, for example, say I'm a vegan and I work in a meat market, (laughs) you know, that's going to be from the get go. There's really no way to kind of navigate through that. So, yes, in those situations, you know, we work together to plan an exit strategy and look towards the next horizon. Uh, But I also think that it's possible. And certainly this is what happened to me a lot. So this is where I really try to work with people closely. Sometimes it's actually a matter of, you know, there's something that we are overlooking in ourselves that we actually have a growing edge. Um, you know, perhaps it's a matter of like, you need to go speak with your supervisor and there's a way you can like get flex time hours or get a project that's really going to actually be much more exciting for you. Um, and this is, you know, a place where you just need to learn how to like use your voice um, and also bringing your core intention into the job more clearly. So oftentimes it, it actually is a matter of like making some of those tweaks and you can actually stay where you're at for a while longer. Um, so that would be where I would go first with the person is just do some more investigation into that. Yeah, I know when I made my transition, um, I just knew I wanted out of banking and that whole uh-huh. world. And right. even though I'd taken my real estate uh, broker's license, I took my stockbroker's license thinking I was going to do that. And I realized at some point, oh, actually, it was, I was galloping on a beach in Oregon on a horse. <laughs> I realized, you know what, that's just going to be more of the same. Right. But, but yeah. what um, helped me was just going out and exploring by going back to school and just taking uh-huh. random classes. And you talk about exploring uh, in your book a lot. So what are some of the ways you encourage people to explore? Right. And also, I should say, just for that last scenario, another question I think is so important for people is to really ask yourself, um, you know, if I leave now, am I doing so from a place of running away from something right, right. or am I moving towards something? 
right? So in, I think usually if we're making a job just simply because we hate it so much, often, and I know I did this in my early career, you know, we take that baggage with us to the next job and, you know, it's going to be good for, you know, six months or a year and then you'll realize like, oh my goodness, you know, it's not just the job, right? Yeah, now that's an excellent so, point yeah. because most of yeah. us do, uh, they say most of us do run from pain versus run uh-huh. to pleasure and we, we want to aim to run to something. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So the exploratory piece, I mean, there's many ways to do that. Um, You know, one phrase that's used a lot these days in career development is is a side hustle. So you could actually, you know, if you need the stability and income from your current job, and many of us do, that doesn't have to stop this process, right? You can actually create a side hustle. Um, So in, you know, even just a few hours a week, you can really experiment. You know, if you're if you're a musician, you can actually like make a little bit more effort to go out there and connect with other musicians and start like, you know, a garage band for just like a couple hours a week and see what that turns into. Um, so there's all kinds of ways we can create more space in our lives to explore. And I think that's super important in this process. Right, right. So I want to talk, you've talked about uh, the six keys to liberation. Uh, this is what your book is based around, really. And I want to just talk about um, those a little uh, because obviously they're the, the keys to, to making this change. Um, talk about becoming intimate with your core intention, because I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people struggle with this. I know because I've had long conversations with people about right. it. <laughs> yeah, so this phrase that I use, core intention, um, and it is the first of the six keys because it's fundamental, basically. I think really you need to at least start on this one, even if you don't have it entirely clear, but this has to come first before before you really can create work that you love. Um, and when I use core intention, it's actually different from, you know, passion, for example, which is often used, like find your right, passion. Right. Because to me, that, that, you know, passion is like, it's still in the what. It's like, you know, things that you love to do. So, you know, maybe I'm passionate about writing or, you know, horses or painting. Um, and those are all wonderful things to know about yourself. But when I say core intention, I'm actually talking about the why that's underneath that. So it's kind of like your purpose. You know, what is what's your unique gift that you're here to offer the world? Um, and it's more in the why zone than the what zone. I've, so, for example, yeah, for example, just for me, like what I have learned over the years is uh, my core intention is to help people open up their minds and their hearts and really, you know, offer them new possibilities in, in this case for their livelihoods. And so something I learned early on about myself, like I really love to write. Um, so for a number of years, I did freelance editing. And I thought that would work because I love to work with words. But actually, I found it quite tedious. <laughs> and it wasn't until I actually um, got more clear on that core intention and I found a setting I could work I could work with. I was actually editing a magazine that had incredible articles about um, political um, issues and social engagement from a Buddhist perspective. And the, the articles people were writing did just that. They were helping to open people's hearts and minds. And that's when I felt myself light up, like, oh, it's because I'm now doing this. It's the why that was underneath working with words. That's what I had to discern more of. So that's what, um, you know, the process of becoming intimate with your core intention. And in the book, I offer a number of practices and exercises to help you get closer to that. To me, that's really essential to to get to that work that you love. Yeah, I actually ran into somebody uh, who was a corporate communications officer. Great job. She made a ton of money, was really miserable. She's now uh-huh. working for a nonprofit dealing with children. She looks like a different person. She's uh-huh. so happy. <laughs> so she's got her core intention there. 
Um, That's a great example. Yeah. One of the things we do is get in our own way a lot <laughs> when you're working yep. with, with people on this. Um, what are some of the ways you uh, find people getting in their own way? Um, well, actually, that, that leads nicely into the next key, which is value your gifts and time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one thing in this, again, from my own experience, just watching myself, and this is what I would do, it's so easy, I think, to just um, to, to fritter away our the gifts that we have and the time that we have to offer people. And often I think, you know, we get asked to do things that we're good at. Like, say, for example, I tend to be good at helping people organize things so I can help them organize their files or a project. Um, and so I get asked to do that a lot. But you know, the more I've gotten to know my core intention, the more I get like that really has nothing to do with it. And so I think one way that we can get in our own way is just to say yes to a lot of things without discerning if they're actually connected to that core intention. Yeah. So it really helps to learn how to, to truly value that um, and to learn what to say yes to and what to say no to. So you can keep your energy, you know, alive for the things that you most care about. Yeah, I'm reading a book called Deep Work right now. I'm not I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's by Cal Newport. Oh. Um, and it's all about uh, not spreading ourselves too thin, ultimately, but it's about really focusing, you know, on one thing. And he gives several references of people over the years, you know, young, uh, Carl Young, and um, many, many people who are out there now making a big difference who basically adopt this philosophy. And um, so I think that's really, really important point in your uh, six keys. Um, no, key number three is break them, break through the inertia. And when you're feeling, um, you know, kind of ho-hum about things, it, that can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is another place where we get hung up, right? Um, that we often, and, and I think they do flow, like, you know, the more you get close to your core intention, you start to value yourself. Often what starts to happen is then, you know, you get, there's maybe an incredible project that you want to create or that you're invited to help on. And then you feel it's almost like your inner donkey comes out like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Like, you know, I'm not ready yet or it's got to be perfect and I'm not there yet. So those all those kinds of paralysis analysis forms that becomes inertia. Right. Uh, So that that chapter has a lot of very practical strategies to, you know, notice when that's happening and to learn how to just move right through that and, and take action, basically. Right. Key number four is befriend uncertainty. I think that's a given. We, we definitely, uh, nothing is certain these days, right? Absolutely. And again, you know, the more we get closer to this core intention and start now taking action, um, this is when we usually begin to freak out. It's like, okay, well, now this is real. Like, this will actually happen. But it also requires me to be open to taking a risk because we don't know the outcome, right? Um, and so that's where, you know, the more skills that we have, and I think many of the skills actually fall under the category of, like, mindfulness practice. Um, it's so wonderful at helping us to really, you know, be in a place of uncertainty and, and not having to get an answer. So that's, that's an incredible skill to have. It is because that's a dangerous point uh, when you yeah. get to that uncertainty for many people because they tend to loop back into the comfort zone. So exactly. Right. And uh, let's have a look. Key number five, because we don't have much time left here, but key number five, think big, op- uh, optimize your resources. Right. And think big here simply means um, in your own world. So look for the places where you limit yourself and learn how to go beyond that. Um, And making the most of your resources means not only money, because that's often where we get hung up, like, oh, I can't do it because I don't have the money, but really expanding your sense of resources to your community, you know, your life skills, your background, um, your time. There's so many other resources that we have. Right. 
And then key number six is uh, build a circle of allies and ask for help. That can be a challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, especially asking for help. I think a lot of people um, are afraid to do that. And so that, that key is about helping to reframe that idea of asking for help to realize that actually often it's a gift. You know, when you ask for something in a way that's really from your heart, you're actually giving somebody else a chance to um, to give from their heart, and that feels really good for them. Yeah. I came uh, across what you call unlearning explorations in the book, which I thought were great. Uh-huh. Talk to us about those, if you would. Yeah. Well, the unlearning explorations, I think they're especially relevant to um, as we do our detective journey to try to find our core intention, because I think a lot of times when we grow up, we're getting so many messages from our family, from our culture, um, about what we should or shouldn't be doing with our lives. So the unlearning is to help bring those more up to awareness so that we can actually then make a conscious choice. Like, yes, that's, you know, that's a belief I want to continue or no, hey, that's not my belief. You know, I really am ready to let go of that right now. Right, right. So if if people listening today are struggling with their work situation, they heard nothing else today, what do you want them to take away? Um, that it's possible to actually love your work. <laughs> I think, you know, when we're deep in the the pit of suffering around our work, job-related suffering, sometimes it feels like there's no other way. Um, And I just would want to offer to people, and I just base this on my own life's journey because I've been in places of deep suffering around my work, that it actually is possible to create um, a life where your livelihood just really reflects who you are and you can express yourself and also sustain yourself, um, you know, with income coming in. So it's entirely possible. Right, right. And when you talk about the six keys that we, we just uh, went, ran through very, very quickly, you go into them in much more detail in the book, um, but you call them the six keys to liberation-based livelihood. So what, what do you mean by that? So I simply mean by that, um, to, and I, I don't know, it's just, I glommed onto the word liberation, I think because for me, freedom is such a deeply held value. Yeah. And I mean by that, you know, the freedom to, to really consciously take on, you know, my own belief system to not just have holdovers from family or culture. So there's a lot around liberation that's like freedom, right? So liberation-based livelihood is basically a livelihood where you're free to express your core intention um, completely in that work. Awesome. Well, Maya Dua, thank you so much for being with us. The book is called Work That Matters. Create a livelihood that reflects your core intention and the best website for people to find out more about you, Maya. You can go on to my website, which is the same as my name. So it's M-A-I-A-D-U-E-R-R.com. And then the book itself is available on Amazon. Um, and also, if you go into your friendly independent bookstore and ask for it, that would be a super thing. All right. Thank you so much. Maya Dua, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Vicki. And the book again, Work That Matters. And we will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Let's see if I, I guess that, (sighs) this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you 
at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to best practitioner Dr. Nels Rasmussen, we cover the world of animals. This week, June 24th, it's an encore harmonic energy shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Ponton from the Whispering Dragon Center in Seattle in the studio. Hear them use their acutonic forks, Tibetan bowls and bells, chimes and didge to do remote treatments for listeners and their animal friends, plus great homeopathic remedies information. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Laughter can help heal illness, emotions, and relationships. Jeopardy! champion and New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings joins us to share a peek into the history of humor with Planet Funny. We'll also look at how to develop the right idea at the right time and the science behind creativity and the creative curve with Alan Gannett. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Be sure to tune in every Monday at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Making a difference, one word at a time. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we are talking uh, in this segment with Aaron Edelheit. He uh, is the author of his new book, The Hard Break, The Case for a 24 Six lifestyles, something I've tried to incorporate for quite a while in my life, as I said at the beginning of the hour. So we're going to learn more about that right now. Um, Aaron Edelheit is the chief strategy officer of Flow Technologies. He founded uh, Mindset Capital, a private investment firm, and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and all those good channels, and, uh, and the New York Times. And he's given lectures on entrepreneurship and investments all over the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. And uh, as I said, he's joining us today to talk about his new book, The Hard Break, The Case for a 24-6 Lifestyle. Aaron Edelheit, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So I read, Aaron, (laughs) that you were a a self-confessed workaholic until something uh, made you stop and pause. Well, let me correct you. I'm still a workaholic. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of dri- suspected that, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm driven in ways that I'm not sure I understand. Um, and, I mean, I have wrote this book to myself, uh, but to others, but it's something I continue to uh, struggle with. Uh, but about, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, I kind of hit a wall where I realized that 
no matter how hard I worked, I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. And not only that, my personal life and my health was suffering. And so I kind of fell back and, and really out of desperation decided, well, maybe instead of working every single second and working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would take a break. And I started uh, like on a Saturday morning, turning off my phone and computer. And uh, from there, it kind of transformed my life. Yeah. So that really is the premise of the book, um, is that one day a week, we take a break from technology and you're not beating up on technology because you use it every day for work I use it every day for work but what is yes. it about having that one day where you don't have to deal with it that makes all the difference for you well the, the technology is amazing the fact that you know we the communications is so easy that we can work anywhere that we can do anything if you're driven and you're curious and you're you're you know, the world, it's infinite. The world's knowledge is that you're, there's no end to the amount of work that you can do. But there's also a downside to that in that you're on call to the world. You may not realize it, but you're on call and that there are severe negative aspects uh, to you not only working all the time, but have your technology where you're essentially on call. Right. Uh, one aspect that I highlight in the book is just the mental health epidemic that is going on in our country right now. And people are more anxious and angry and, uh, you know, stressed in the use of, uh, you know, depression medication. And, uh, you know, people are struggling. And I think that it deals with the fact that we're not machines. We're not meant to be online and connected to the world at every second. And we don't know how to deal with it. So I, in the book you say, and this number absolutely staggered me. I, I had to put my glasses on to make sure I'd read it right. But uh, you said that we touch, the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Yes. That is, it's really almost unbelievable, isn't it? I certainly don't touch what, what mine. About, what about the average email goes unread for six seconds? Yeah, well... I, I mean, <laughs> you, but you're not talking about the heavy user. I'm a heavy user. Yeah. And it, the, I think the number that I have in my book is something like 3,700 or 3,600 times you're touching it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with all these bings and buzzes and uh, calls and everything, we're kind of trained like Pavlov's dogs. Exactly. And so the... The, the reason I wrote the book, though, is not to make a screed around technology. It's that I want to succeed. I want to achieve, you know, and how do you achieve and how do you succeed in the modern world? And the argument of my book is actually by working a little less, by carving out space in your life where you're not on, where your phone is off and you're not working, you actually can succeed. Yeah. And, and so what does that what does that mean? And so part of it is for us to succeed in the world, we need to be innovative and creative and have ideas and problem solve. And so the latest science, uh, neuroscience research, and the latest studies show that if you're not giving your brain a break, you're not going to have the capacity to do that. You simply don't have time to think either. You know, as a writer, and, and I know all of my creative friends say the same thing, if you don't have time to think, you do not produce good work or work that you, you know, that you as good as you could. Yeah. So, so one aspect of this book was just like 
that, that was just so fascinating to me is it turns out there's a part of your brain called the default mode network. And so when you're resting or reflecting or just not working, going for a walk, you think your brain isn't working, but there's a part, this part of your brain called the default mode network is going into overdrive. What does the default mode network do? It's Aaron, the part of your... Aaron, I'm yeah. sorry, can I just interrupt? I know we're, we're dialing in on Skype today. That was the only way we could reach you. But if I can ask you to keep really still because we're getting a lot of static for some reason. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Is this better? Yeah, super. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I want people to hear what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. So the default mode network, what it does is it pieces together the information and experiences and you try to gain understanding and you use pattern recognition to form patterns. And so what happens when you're resting or reflecting is that you're the part of your brain that is the most that that gains understanding of the world is actually working. And so who are the people that have the strongest default mode networks? Artists. And so to compete in today's world, if you're not resting and reflecting, you're not giving your, the, yourself the chance to be creative and innovative. Right. So I want to ask you what changes you've made. You, uh, you, you implemented this 24-7. I actually turned my computer off on Friday night and it doesn't go back on until I need it, which is usually Sunday when I prep for the show. Um, but I, I'm religious about that. Um, I do sometimes, do sometimes use my phone, but I'm, I'm trying to drop that thing too <laughs> on Saturday. And I can tell you it's made a huge difference to me, but I'm wondering what difference has it made to you? Well, one is, is that my stress level falls. That I find that um, it's not this negative thing. What happens is I just have this whole release of stress. I'm able to be present more with my family and friends. But more fascinating is when I turn back on, I'm rejuvenated. Mm. And so I get a vacation, one day vacation every week. And I believe that this enables me to sustain higher work output and to achieve more. And I think it's what allowed me to build my past company, the American Home, from 16 single family rental homes to 2,500. And we were able to sell the company three years ago to a publicly traded real estate investment trust. And without my practice of the Sabbath, I never would have been able to build that company and, and succeed through the financial crisis and go through the ups and downs of growing really fast. Right. And that's why I wrote the book. After I sold that company, I said, I need to pass this along. I need to show people definitive proof that this works. And so not only do I tell my story, but I share other uh, stories of businesses like Chick-fil-A, like Boston Consulting Group, prominent venture capitalist Brad Feld and many more who practice the Sabbath, uh, give themselves a hard break and actually are succeeding at the highest levels of business. Right, right. So you share in the book uh, seven steps to a success Sabbath, as you call it. So what would they be? Share the most important three with us, if you would, because we don't have sure. too much time. For here. sure, for sure. And so you know, part of the book, to your point, is I want to share. I have 200 footnotes in the book around scientific studies at Harvard and Stanford and right. the Center for Disease Control proving how bad it is what we're doing and then share some success stories. But it wouldn't be any value unless I showed like, wait, how can you actually implement this in today's modern world. And so one of the ways that I recommend is baby steps. And this is how I did it. 
is I started with four hours in the morning. And then over time, a couple weeks, it seemed like this girl grew to a task. How am I going to have my phone off for four <laughs> hours? Which is so ridiculous, right? It shows you how addicted I am. Right. I still am. Lives right. everyone else. And then eventually I said, okay, I made it till noon. Now can I make it till two? Now can I make it till three? And then eventually I realized, oh, I can do a whole day. And that's what really transformed my life. So taking baby steps, implementing your life, preparing thinking about how, what you're going to do the day in the future, if you're going to meet anyone, uh, what are you going to do? How will they get in contact with you? You know, sometimes we need to have our phones on for emergencies. I have three small kids and we've had some health scares. And so what my wife will do and I will do sometimes, uh, you know, if it's necessary, we need to be in contact and we're separated is my wife and I will switch phones. There's nothing on my wife's right. phone. Right, that's a good idea. That no email, no Twitter. But I love Twitter, by the way. But um, <laughs> you know, none of her social media means nothing to me, and so I can't work. I really have to would have to work hard. It would make me feel terrible. But uh, so so using little tips and tools like that. I think the other thing I recommend is just having having some regular shared meal is just amazing. Going for walks. You know, we always have this proverbial idea in the shower, right? Right. Well, the same thing, there's all this scientific literature that shows how beneficial a walk in nature is. But so many of us are so busy during the day trying to succeed. We don't realize that 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 simple hour walk can be incredibly beneficial to us in our business endeavors. Yeah, I do. Every day I walk out with my dog every day in the nature for an hour and whether I'm conscious of it or not I'm thinking about things and things get resolved without me even worrying about them yes because there's a part of your brain you all of a sudden like how did I have this idea you come to a solution right because that there's that part of your brain that's working when you think it's not right well the book is called the hard break the case for 24 6 lifestyle I'd recommend we all start working toward that um, I think we'd be a lot less stressed and I know you want to encourage Americans to take vacations because they don't. Um, very quickly, Aaron, a website where people can reach you, please. So they can reach me at thehardbreak.com or they can find me on Twitter, Aaron Value, uh, and Facebook as well. All right. Thank you, Aaron Edelheit. Thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. And uh, the book, again, is called The Hard Break, The Case for a 24-6 Lifestyle. And uh, we're right at the end of our show, so I want to thank you for being with us today. You can find me at 800-495-7617 if you have questions or comments. Um, 800-495-7617. You can also find me at info at conversationslive.net and, of course, on Twitter. Uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.